Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. listening to the Hoping in God's Future sermon series at Sojourn East. Whether in times of peace or calamity, security or uncertainty, God invites his people to look to him with hope because he is both sovereign and good. Hello, friends. Someone said to me this week that they missed the Gospel of Matthew. I do too. It seems like a lifetime ago that we were happily walking through these great stories of Jesus from Matthew, and we will get back to this, I promise. I'm very much looking forward to it as well. But back in March, uh, with our sudden shift to online services, we felt like we needed to address the pandemic at hand, so Pastor Kevin spent a few weeks on that. And then as the weeks of uncertainty dragged on and turned out to be more than just a blip, we realized that we needed to talk about hope. Hope is a deeply biblical topic that's woven throughout Holy Scripture, yet one that I think we rarely teach or preach about. And the reason hope is so important is because, as I said back in that first message many weeks ago now, to be a Christian is to be a person whose life is marked very much by this forward-looking faith in God's promises for the future. That's a big part of what the New Testament's teaching is, looking forward to what God is doing and will do in the future. And so my hope for this series that we're wrapping up today on hope is that you have grown in your understanding of what the Bible teaches about the future and how to live in the present as a result. And we haven't been, very intentionally, we have not been heavy on things for you to do because we've really wanted to mainly shape your hearts and to reshape your vision for what God promises to do in us and for us. There'll always be plenty of time for you and me to to labor and to work on things. But now I think is a rare time in our lives for us to pause and reflect and to reorient our hopes at the heart level. And I think there's no better place to wrap up this series on hope than where the biblical story itself ends in the book of Revelation chapters 21 and 22. So that's what we're going to look at briefly today. Not the whole thing but the book of Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Now, as we turn to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, I'd like you to imagine for a moment that you've never read the Bible before. And maybe actually for some of you watching today, maybe you haven't read the Bible before. And if so, welcome. I'm I'm glad that you're here. But if you can imagine if you've never read the Bible before and you were to pick up the Old Testament or maybe one of the Gospels, It might seem a little foreign, but I think for the most part, you and I could follow the basic storyline. Similarly, if you were to pick up maybe one of the letters of Paul, like Romans or something, you wouldn't understand everything, but I think you could probably get the basic idea, the basic sense of it. But if you and I had never read the Bible before and you picked up this last book, this book of Revelation, it would not take long before you and I would be asking, what on earth is this talking about? It's full of images and language and creatures that are just totally alien to us. Now, this is not the time or place for me to explain how to interpret this kind of biblical writing or the whole complex structure of the book of Revelation. That would be better done in a classroom. But let me just say this. 
The purpose of the book of Revelation is to give us a vision of the present and the future from a heavenly perspective so that we will have the courage and hope now to press on in our life of faith on the earth. Let me just say that again. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to give us this heavenly vision of the present and the future so that now on earth we might have the courage and faith to press on. You see, the purpose is to help Christian readers make a mental journey into the world of heaven and the future so that when we step back out of that world and into our regular daily earthly lives, we'll still be impacted by it and it will change us. I think of it like watching a powerful movie and how it affects you. I, for me, it might be like Interstellar or Arrival or maybe that Italian film from many years ago that I hope you've seen, Life is Beautiful. In that story, Life is Beautiful, most of the story takes place in a Jewish concentration camp during World War II. And it was, it's a story about a man who kept his young son alive in the midst of all the torment by giving him hope. And it's a very powerful film. And it was kind of a movie. I remember the first time I watched it, for many days afterwards, I kept thinking about it and having moments cross through my mind of it. And it still continued to affect me. And that's what a great story or great movie does. That's what a good story does best. We enter it for a brief time, and then once we're away from it, once we put it down, we find that it has entered us as well, that we are changed in some way. Our perspective on the world is different. I remember seeing the, one of the documentaries about, about Fred Rogers, and I was just, for the next several days, I felt like I wanted to be more like him, and I still do, actually. But it, those first few days after you enter a great story, it has a great impact on you. And this is exactly the point of the book of Revelation. We enter into its very vivid and dramatic world, and we see things for how they really are, so that when we come back to this life, which is limited in our seeing, we'll live with a hope in God's future. So in Revelation 21 and 22, we come to the very end of the book, the end of the Bible, the end of history, and what we have here is a new creation a new creation as God regenerates the earth and heaven itself and the holy city of Jerusalem comes, descends from heaven to earth. That is the greatest hope of all humanity. This is the consummation of all God's plans and works. And that's what I want us to think about today as we wrap up this series on hope that what I'm calling the four golden joys awaiting us in the new creation. So here they are. Four golden joys awaiting us in the new creation that the Bible talks about in Revelation 21 and 22. First, there will be no more grief, pain, or death. In this new creation that God speaks of, there will be no more grief, pain, or death. Look with me at the first few verses of Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Friends, life now even for Christians, has a large share of grief and death and pain, doesn't it? But in the new creation, the first thing we learn 
this new creation, these things will be no more. This means no more heart-deep grief over a suffering marriage. This means no more pain of a child who is rejected and despised by his own father. This means no more arthritic joints and jaws and ankles and knees that swell when the weather is humid. This means no more strokes or heart attacks. This means no more viruses and job loss and murder hornets. This means no more miscarriages or stillbirths or baby-sized caskets. This means no more widows in India or China or anywhere wailing over their martyred husbands. Instead, God will satisfy all of our thirst and hunger, both our physical and our spiritual needs in the deepest way. The passage continues, look at verse five. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And those who are victorious will inherit all of this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. And let me skip down to verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it to this new creation, nor will anyone who does does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Have you ever stopped and... Just try to imagine how good the world would be if there were no sin in it. I mean, I know it sounds a little ridiculous to us right now, but consider how things would be if your children never fought with one another or pushed one another or lied to you. Imagine what it would be like if you and your spouse loved each other fully without selfish motives and immaturity and with complete fidelity. Imagine if you never got ripped off by any company or person, if no one ever failed you when when, when they're trying to take advantage of you or just the pressure's on and they fail you. No one ridicules you or talks behind your back or tries to injure you in any way. Your children are not in danger of being kidnapped or harassed. No theft, no arson, no murder. We could go on and on. Just imagine that. And, And then just imagine your own life if it were free from sin. I mean, don't you get tired of your own sin and your brokenness and your failures and your besetting sins, as the people of old would have called it? The reason we get tired of these things is because we were made for something more. And if you can imagine how wonderful life would be when we are free from sin, grief, pain, and death, you're beginning to get a glimpse of what God is talking about here in the new creation. And that leads to the second golden joy awaiting us in the new creation. The new creation will be a place of perfect, joyful labor and service. A couple weeks ago, I preached about heaven as the place of true worship. I said that we will see God as he is. And in fact, and we see this from the earlier chapters in Revelation, we will not be able to stop ourselves from worshiping him and casting all of our adoration and our tongues will be praising him. We won't be able to stop ourselves. And so too, even more in the new creation, when God himself will be among us and will be in our glorified bodies, free from sin, we will worship him freely. But I think we have to stop and be totally honest here. If we were to be honest with ourselves and ask 
how excited you really are about the idea of worshiping God forever. I bet if we were just completely honest with ourselves and with each other, that if that I think it might sound a little boring to us. If you're anything like me, you actually like worship, but you also like life. <laughs> you like living life, all the pleasures of, of being an embodied creature, all its varieties of activities and pleasures. The question is, will all that be gone? Because you see, the idea of like an endless church service where we all gather together and we open to page one of a hymnal and we sing every word, every verse all the way through the hymnal, and then we start over again forever, honestly, that doesn't sound very appealing. And I think we're maybe afraid to sort of say that because we, we know we, you know, worshiping God is amazing. But the reality is, you know, if we just had an eternal hymn fest and we never got to go home to the roast beef and the nap and the, and the other pleasures of walking outside, it may not sound very exciting. Well, we can trust that if, if an eternal hymn fest is what God had for us, it would be enough to satisfy our souls. But I think the great news is that God has something so much more for us than that. The new creation will not just be an endless hymn fest, though I believe there will be music there, but it is a place of perfect, joyful labor and service. Look at chapter 22, the first few verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. The picture of the new creation is a picture of a renewed and restored Eden, the Garden of Eden, when the first humans worked and tended and built and cared for and enjoyed their embodied, created existence free from all brokenness. And that curse that it says is no longer there, of course, is talking about the curse from Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve blew it. They rebelled against God trying to make take their future into their own hands. Here's what God said to Adam on that dreadful day back in Genesis 3. He said, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. You see, we need to understand, friends, that labor and work are good things. They were part of the pre-fall and they're part of the new creation as well. Labor and work and tending and caring for things are not part of the curse. God has called us to work and to labor, and he naturally gives us great satisfaction from doing so. He put Adam and Eve in this luscious garden and told them to cultivate it and care for all the creatures. This is not part of the curse. Work is good. God worked himself and then rested. The curse is that now for us, this labor that we experience is terribly difficult and at times frustrating and out of our control. And there's so much of nature that we don't control and rule over. But the good news is not that we will have nothing to do in the new creation. The good news is that the curse is removed. So in the new creation, there's no reason to think that our personalities and interests will be obliterated. We're embodied, unique, created beings. In the new creation, we're not going to be robots. We're not just going to be, you know, an eternal hymn fest, but we will serve and work 
free from the curse with complete joy. So think about it like this. Envision the times you've spent on a beloved hobby, no matter what it is, whether it's for you reading or writing or model airplanes or going to garage sales or gardening or you know, needlepoint, woodworking, boating, soccer, laundry, whatever you're working on cars, whatever it is that your, your hobby is, whatever it is, when you're doing it, there's still work, isn't there? There's still diligence involved. But if you love what you're doing and, you're, and it's going well, the hours just fly by. And, and you look forward to getting to do this work. You are present to whatever you're doing with freedom and joy. Well, if you can imagine, that's what all of our work will be like there. It is still labor, it's still diligence, but it's free from curse, it's free from frustration, and there's a deep satisfaction in us as humans in that. I'm afraid that our popular images of, of heaven have damaged our hope in it. The hope of being a Christian is not that, again, we're going to turn into angelic babies floating around on clouds, lightly strumming you know, three-stringed harps like a toilet paper commercial or something. Who wants that? None of us want that. None of us want to be just standing all for the rest of our eternity like this, right? No, we're talking about eternal life. And that life is real living. It's real living that just goes on forever. It's labor with joy where we serve our King gladly. We love each other in relationships and we are engaged in being embodied creatures and resurrected bodies without the curse. Third golden joy awaiting us. The new creation will be a joyful community. Now, I get this from the fact that these passages in Revelation 21 and 22 talk about the city of the new Jerusalem. Just consider for a minute this interesting idea that every picture that we have of the new creation is a picture of corporate life. It's a picture of community. Eternal life is never depicted as a solitary existence, as just sort of me and Jesus or something. Instead, every picture from the Old Testament and the New Testament of the future time when God's going to bring redemption is a picture of perfect community with each other. And we're talking here, and the, the image that's being described is of a new Jerusalem. It's, it's a city. And in a city, people live close to each other and work close to each other. And of course, this is the source of all kinds of problems, isn't it? When we are sinful and we're living in a broken world. But when sin is gone, when the curse is gone, this living together is going to be precisely the source of our great joy and strength. Think of a dear friend you may have. That person or maybe a few people in your life that you know and, you, and know you well enough that you can be free. You can be free from worrying about what they're thinking. You can be free from being anxious about whether you're entertaining them enough or whether they're bored. And you can just enjoy, enjoy the pleasures of life together, including shared burdens and brokenness together. That, that's what friendship and community looks like. And I, when I think of this, I think of many things, but I think of this, this really great song from Sarah Groves about friendship. And I, I don't know if you know her as a Christian or she's wonderful, but here's some words from Sarah Grove from a song she wrote about friendship. She says, when I'm down and I need to cry till morning, I know just where I'm going. When I'm in need of sweet commiseration to speak out loud, raise a glass to friendship and to knowing you don't have to go alone. 
We'll raise our hearts to share each other's burdens on this road. Every burden I've carried, every joy it's understood. Life with you is half as hard and twice as good. I've known that sweetness of community of fellowship, and I'm convinced that life is as only the life is only as good as its relationships. No matter how much success or fame or possessions you might have, without deep, meaningful relationships, life really is empty. C.S. Lewis describes it this way. When the whole group is together, each bringing out all that is best, wisest, funniest, and all the others, those are the golden sessions. When four or five of us, after a hard day's walking, have come to our inn, when our slippers are on, our feet spread out towards the blaze, it drinks at our elbows, when the whole world and something beyond the world opens itself to our minds as we talk, and no one has any claim or any responsibility for another, but all are freemen and equals as if we had first met an hour ago, while at the same time an affection mellowed by the years enfolds us. Life, natural life, has no better gift to give. What a beautiful picture of friendship. I've tasted this before many times. I hope you have too. There is a sweetness to friendship and good fellowship that is one of the greatest God-given pleasures of the world. And I know many of you feel the lack of this, that you long for that kind of friendship. And, and not just being hindered during this time of crisis, maybe in your life overall you feel like you don't have this. But you do know it's possible because you have that longing in your heart. Well, friends, this is the vision of the new creation. What a joy we will have in loving one another, rejoicing together in the grace given to us, in relationships of love that are free from brokenness and jealousy and, and all the things that get messed up. And we can spend the first 27 million years of eternity discussing what we want to do for the next 32 million years and the perfect vacation we're going to take together. Because we are unique, embodied creatures. And again, that won't be obliterated in the new creation. There's good reason to believe that we'll still know each other, that we'll be recognizable as real people, as individuals. And if you were to look around you, many of the very people that, are, that, that you see and know now will be your eternal companions, brothers and sisters. This is the vision of the new creation, of this life together in perfect community, not just an individual, but in relationships of love. And this leads to our fourth and final golden joy. The new creation means immediate and intimate dwelling with God. Imagine that you're engaged, but for the first, but for the year before you get married, you have to be separated from your fiance by 2,000 miles. And you can't see each other at all. It's hard in this day and age. You can always just FaceTime or Zoom. Uh, but imagine you had none of those options. And as the time draws closer, your beloved sends you wonderful gifts of gold and chocolate and flowers and notes of love and the anticipation grows. And then finally, the day arrives and you see each other face to face and you can feel shivers of joy and excitement flow across your skin and in your bones. And at that moment, the gifts that were sent before, as wonderful as they were, matter nothing compared to the person the beloved one whom you have longed to see and you're now seeing. Well, so too, at the consummation and culmination of our redemption, 
the greatest thing that awaits us is not just the beauty of the new creation, as wonderful as that will be, and our glorified bodies and our joyful community and the satisfying work. Those are all wonderful gifts, but the greatest thing will be God himself, our beloved. And throughout the church's history, this great hope has been called the beatific vision, the, the, the vision, the seeing that makes you truly happy. The scholar and pastor Peter Lightheart points out that the detailed measurements of the new Jerusalem that are given in the book of Revelation actually intentionally match the description of the temple in the Old Testament. In other words, the idea is that the new creation the way it's described in Revelation 21 and 22 is simultaneously a garden where the curse is gone. It's simultaneously a city where we live joyfully in community. And it's also simultaneously the temple. And what is the temple about? It's where you meet God face to face, where heaven kisses earth. Let me go back and read those first few verses again. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. And jumping down to verses 22 and 23, I do not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. In the new creation, friends, there won't even be a need for a temple because it itself is the temple. We are there dwelling with God himself. He dwells with us in an immediate way in the new creation. And in fact, this is the great newness of the new creation, God's immediate presence. God dwelt with his people before in the tabernacle, in the temple built by Solomon. In Christ, we read that God tabernacled among humans. In the church is the temple now, but in the new creation, he will be present like never, never before. In fact, this dwelling will be so intense that nothing other than our new glorified bodies could handle it. If we saw him like this now, we would die. And the most provocative of all the statements is in 22.4, and they shall see his face. How can we begin to describe what this will be like? To behold our creator, our redeemer, our friend, our king, our God, our lover, our husband, face to face. Have you ever longed to see someone that you love and who loves you? That longing is a glimpse of what we are made for when we will see God face to face. And that, friends, is the pinnacle of all of our hopes, the realization of the new creation, seeing God himself. And so, as this series on hoping in God's future ends, as I said at the beginning, I don't want to burden you with a, a spiritual to-do list from this. Instead, I want to appeal to you. I want to invite you to open your eyes and recognize that the Bible is describing exactly what you long for. The Bible is describing what you were made for. This is what is in your heart as created as a human. And it is only found through a relationship with Jesus Christ. There's the only way to get connected to what you are actually made for and long for. All your longings in life, 
all your desires, those fleeting moments of joy and pleasure in relationships or on the golf course or whatever it is, all your hopes, your dreams, your nostalgia, all of those friends are echoes in your heart of what you were created for, for perfect fellowship with God and with others. And all the passing moments of delight you've ever had and the frustrations of not being able to sustain those delights, those are meant to be guideposts for you and me to pursue the city above whose architect is God, to pursue God himself, the one of whom it is said that at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. That is what your heart was created for. That's what your body was created for. And that's exactly what God is talking about in the new creation. I don't think I can do better than end with a quote from a unicorn. And not just any unicorn, but the good animal at the end of Lewis's The Last Battle, who has found himself and uh, with the others in this new recreated Narnia, this new creation. And, and here's what Lewis writes. It was the unicorn, as they're all standing there together on the, on the cusp of new creation, it was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed, and he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. So come further up, come further in. Friends, I invite you to the same. This is what your heart was created for. This is why no matter how much money or fame or possessions you have or don't have, the world leaves us empty and down. You were made for something more, and it's God. So seek the Lord while he may be found. Amen and amen. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.